Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello, this is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Welcome, I'm Hugh Wisencroft. It's Thursday, we'll be looking back at the midweek Premier League action as both Spurs and Newcastle incur the wrath of their fans. We'll also look ahead to the top of the table clash between Liverpool and Manchester United at the weekend. We'll ask, should hugs be allowed on a football pitch at the moment? And who is the best English manager right now? To help me discuss it all, Tom Clark, Jonathan Northcroft and Gregor Robertson. Morning, guys. How are you doing? Morning, Hugh. Morning, Hugh. Very well, you? Oh, yeah. There you yeah, go. I'm delighted. All three. Thank you. Full house of excitement. Thank you. Pumped, ready That's for That's all it. I ask for. That's all I ask for. You know, I give it something. I just want something in return. You know, that, that's how life should be, frankly. Um, Tottenham fans at the moment, we're going to start with them because this is not what life should be like when you've got Kane, Son, Mora, etc., all the attacking talent in the world, but Jose Mourinho continues to play with a defensive mindset and it's cost his side once again. They've only won two of their last eight Premier League matches. This time they were held by relegation threatened Fulham at home. It finished one all. We've got to ask, Jonathan, I'll start with you. Why do you think Jose continues to play like this? It's an interesting one, Hugh, because I think if Jose was here, he would claim that he's not trying to play like this. And in fact, Pierre-Emil Hoiberg's interview last night um, after the game, and he's kind of Jose's representative on the pitch, if you like, he was trying to suggest that, you know, we need to favour, that the manager hasn't told us to do this. So I think there's a nuance that that maybe the players aren't aren't getting. Um, The question is whether that nuance is actually worth anything in, in, in the sense that I think Jose is trying to tell them to take risks, but only take risks when, uh, when you can. And that's translating to a message of, 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 of caution. And the problem with his approach, I th- and I thought, you know, I thought the game against Crystal Palace was the start of all this. The pro- it's a very reductive approach of trying to score a goal um, protect it, draw the opposition forward and then try and get another. He did it. He was a master at Chelsea all those years ago. He won every game 2-0. As we've discussed here, football has changed. It's become a more attacking game. And the thing that really strikes me is that they're just not defending well enough to get away with this. They keep conceding goals in the air, um, either from crosses or, 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 or set pieces. Um, so if, if they're going to keep playing like this, they're going to keep dropping points. They're going to keep getting caught at some point, usually with a cross in the box late in the game when they're a bit tired. Um, and this sort of nuance is, is, is being lost. Um, they're not going, they're not going anywhere at the moment. They were in the frame for the title and from the, that, that crystal palace game onwards, 
it's just been adrift. And it does look a bit like a team that had the moment it was there to be seized. And by not being able to just um, take a bit more risk or, you know, get the players to, to take a bit more risk, um, then it, they've thrown away a brilliant position. Tom, what do you make of what's happening with Spurs at the moment? Because it's remarkable in in many ways that Tottenham Hotspur are only six points off the top of the table. Yeah, having only won two of their last eight games, it could have been a very, very different story had they just tried to impose themselves a little bit more uh, on the opposition. But as as Johnny alludes to, maybe it is the players. I, I was slightly surprised that Jose Mourinho in his post-match um, comments really did point the finger at the players. You know, we had the chances. We keep having the chances. You know, the likes of Son had a great chance, for example, in the first half. Um, Because I still think they can have twice as many shots in a game. And if they did have twice as many shots and chances in a game, they'd probably score twice as many. And that would mean a lot more victories for them. Yeah, you're absolutely right. They could definitely be more attacking and they've, they've dropped... I think, is it 10 points, possible 10 points from leading positions? So as you say, if they'd picked up, kept a couple of those going, a couple of those wins, they'd be you know, much higher up the table. Johnny makes an interesting point about the nuance of it. And I've obviously been a big defender of the anti-football agenda for, for, one, for, de- for a desperate desire for a better term. But what was interesting to me about watching this game and a few of the other people are saying, oh, Jose Mourinho is too defensive. But as Johnny says, the defending isn't actually that good at the minute. That's the other thing. There was a moment just after they'd scored against Fulham, who I thought were excellent, by the way, and I increasingly enjoy watching Fulham because I think Scott Parker's got he's quite clever tactically and always seems to have an idea, whether it's a good one or a bad one. But there was a moment in the first half, I think after Tottenham had scored, where Adderabayo got the ball and there, were like, there was like a line of four Tottenham players, but they were all about 10 yards away from him. None of them were pressing him particularly hard. And he was able, the Fulham defender, to fizz a pass through that line to Ruben Loftus-Cheek. I think he broke the, you know, the, the forward line and the Tottenham midfield line with one pass. And Loftus turned, played the ball out wide. I think to Tete, you know, ran on into the box. And, and that's that's what's weird to me about Tottenham at the minute. And I maybe this, Gregor can give some insight into this because I'm starting to wonder whether a defensive tactics is fine but whether that then seeps into the player's mindset when it comes to things like intensity and stuff. Because it, it, it's not that they're defending that well. You know, they defended brilliantly against Manchester City and got a win. As Johnny says, they're not defending that well. And it's that intensity, I think, that it encourages teams like Fulham to have moves like that early in the game. And as a Fulham player, you're then going, well, hang on a minute, we can get at these. They're, you know, they're not, they're not all that you know, all that, what, what people say they are. So I wonder whether that's, that's, a, that's a slight difference in the nuance. And I, maybe that's, you know, for Gregor to say whether that it filters down when you're coached to defend, it takes away some of your impetus and your intensity. I think it can, yeah. And it also is, it seems to, it seems to be that they can't really switch between the, the two very successfully. And that, you know, there were big, large periods of the game against Leeds, in fact, when they did press high and they, you know, they, they forced an error and they got goals from it. And, you know, there's even been some games during the season where you've noticed them do that and then retreat. And it does seem to be that when they retreat, it seems that's what's interesting that that Mourinho comes out afterwards and says, you know, 
I'm not basically saying I'm, this is not what I want them to do. I don't want them to sit on the edge of their box when it looks very much like that is the plan. <laughs> uh, and as as Johnny said, Hoiberg basically said said as much afterwards. Said we need to be braver. It's, you know, defending a lead is not necessarily sitting on the edge of your box. But you know, to an outsider, it certainly looks like that's what they've been set out to do. But unless they you know, either either they they go two or three goals up and they do it, and everyone says that's fair enough. This is you know that's a reasonable tactic to employ uh, or they go one up and they look like they're getting really nervous and they don't have the sort of belief that they can see it out and that maybe causes them to drop deeper and deeper and deeper but the back four aren't, aren't good enough to do that that's pretty simple really when you've got you know I've said about Ori many times he's having a decent season but he's always got a rick in him and I don't you know deep, Eric Dyer's improved the season and he's been been good but as Johnny said in the air, they've they've had issues. Um, basically, <laughs> if you're if you're content to let the other team have the ball, there's a chance that eventually they're going to do something with it, and that's the <laughs> they can't be content to let them have the opposition have the ball for so long for such long periods in the match. That's really where Spurs are coming unstuck. I think I think that's the thing, and and the the, the worry from a Spurs point of view is what happened to Jose at Manchester United because he came unstuck there because it the defending wasn't good enough and he left because he couldn't get the defenders that he he wanted um he was trying to play this type of football um and particularly in the bigger games giving the opposition too much of the ball eventually they would they would concede and if you think back to the successful chelsea teams you know it was, it was terry and carvalho it was a team that conceded 15 goals a season you know with his with his real madrid team he had sergio ramos um Spurs have got, you know, Alderweireld's a very good defender, but apart from that, there's nobody world-class in there. And other teams attack so much now that the prevailing mode in the Premier League is is attacking football. And you will get hurt unless you've got really, really good defenders in there. Only only City at the moment are sold enough to play this way and they're the last team that would want to play this way. Can I just ask... Greg, and I know you'll be very, you know, disparaging about your own career and say, "Oh, I didn't play in the Premier League or whatever." But it's the premise of a football manager saying, "You know, be tight, don't don't concede." So let's say Jose. We obviously can never be privy to his team talks until the next Amazon documentary. But let's say, let's say he sent them out to say against Fulham, say, "Oh, they've got a few pacey players. Watch out. Let's try and get a goal." What? How do you? How is your mindset when you then do get the goal? Like as a as a player, you know, you were playing fullback. Is is your mindset once you're leading to not knock the ball down the line for the striker? Is it to knock it in field to midfielder? Like, do, does it change mid game? What do you mean when 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 you take the lead? When, when you take when you then take the lead, if your manager set you up to say to be potentially, you know, for want of a better broader term, cautious, and then you take the lead, twenty minutes gone, it, does your mindset change as a player? I do think it depends about the team you're playing in. I think it depends. You know, if if you're part of a team that scores a goal and and the, the mindset is to is to continue. The thing is, the Spurs in the first half, in fairness, created chances, and you know they, there have been games where they have they have gone for the second and the third, but it's always been in the first half. And it does seem the longer the, the longer the game goes, the more content they are and the more cautious they are. So. I think it depends what at the time of the match that the, the goal scored first of all, and also it depends on the mindset the, the mindset of the of the team, and that really does stem from the manager. I think we we see that if you look across the Premier League and you look across any league, and you you, you have an idea of how a team is going to react to either going behind or to scoring a goal. If it's you know Liverpool or Man City, they'll they'll keep going. 
keep trying to score goals. Um, Spurs certainly that's not the that doesn't seem to be the approach. Or they're they're perfectly content to to, to ask to, to kind of draw the, op- the opposition in and then look for those gaps in the break. And you know Son had one chance; it could have could have worked, but it didn't this time, and it's not working for them often enough. Jonathan, I, I think with Jose Mourinho, um, there have been many people who have been waiting to to sort of carve out his headstone in terms of being a, a, a top manager in football. You know, the way that he played, particularly at Manchester United, a lot of people said it, it's it's too old. He's got to modernise. He came to Tottenham Hotspur. He started doing very well and people said, Jose's back. Now it seems to be going the other way once again. Um <laughs> He seems stubborn. Let's call him that. He does seem stubborn in terms of how he wants to play. I don't imagine he's going to change that very soon. So could there be a really early breakup between his relationship and and Daniel Levy? Hmm. Um, I think he'll get this season. And I mean, (laughs) he may well win the League Cup. He may well win a cup. And and for Spurs, that'll be be a very decent um, return. So I don't think so, Hugh, but... um, I think we've said this before that, you know, with Jose, there's always a cycle um, and a team has to try and win when he's at the peak of, of the Jose upward curve. And I just wonder if it's passed. Uh, I just wonder if they missed the moment um, because what happens, you know, come year, year three, year two and a half to three is, is I think he gets a, a squad at such a sort of peak of, of intensity in terms of how he, he rides them motivationally that they, they, they tend not to be able to take it anymore. And that will come for Spurs, and it probably will come next season, I think. And as I say, it, it, maybe we'll look back and think that moment was you know, beginning of December 2020 when they were top of the league, and it was all there for them to go for, and they, they didn't go for it. See, I'm not so sure about that. I think, particularly if they were to win a trophy this season, that would be that could be kind of... Bit transformative for some of these players, and I think also it, a lot of it depends on the support he's given. If you put a couple of really top class centre halves in this team, this his his system, his way of playing is more efficient. It works better. The the fact he's, he is right when he says, although he's kind of casting the the blame onto to, to the players themselves, he said there were individual mistakes. There are a lot of these things that are individual mistakes. Anyway, there's no more I can say about that. You know, and I. And, Often he's right. He's got Serge Aurier in his team. He's got players who aren't winning headers in the box when they're centre halves. That's those are individual mistakes. I'm not sure though, Greg, because I, I don't think there are top centre halves around. So I don't see I don't see them in particular signing them just financially. And I don't think Manchester City or Liverpool will be as gettable next year. I, 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 the, the door will not be as open. But maybe it does come down to how much winning a League Cup or whatever would count for Spurs. Would that get him a five-year period of grace? I don't know. (laughs) Tottenham fans aren't going to be happy with that. Uh, I'll leave it there. But I will talk about Tottenham a little bit more just because of these two stats. Tottenham's last nine Premier League games, they've only managed 12 shots on target in the second half. And when the cameras cut to the bench at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium and we saw... Gareth Bale sitting there being paid what he's being paid, but having only made four Premier League appearances in five months this season. The two things should have come together. We should have surely seen someone with Bale's talent on the pitch last night, particularly in the last half an hour or so. Tom, what, 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 why is Gareth Bale there? Well, the chaps have just talked about 
Jose pointing the finger at the players. Maybe maybe he's still not forgiven Gareth Bale for that moment against West Ham when he was running through when they still had the lead and he had a chance to score a fourth. Uh, and then, and that that was in his first game. Wasn't I think it? it was his first game. Maybe he's you know Jose strikes me as the kind of man who holds a grudge for a long time. Speaking as speaking as <laughs> someone who holds grudges for a long time myself, uh, so maybe maybe it's that. I, it's a very strange one. I'm he, Gareth Bale has been out of consistent top flight football for a long time. Let's be honest. You know, bit of bit of Wales action here and there. The the standards that you have to be at to play, particularly with the amount of games that are coming up. Maybe it's just a fitness thing. Maybe it's just that he's and, and, and an application thing as well. You know, it's all very fun saying, you know, Wales, golf, Madrid, but that does suggest a guy that isn't that hungry to play football. You know, when you're at Real Madrid and you're happy to go, okay, fine. No worries. Don't worry about it. Are you immediately then going to turn it on when you're going to be sat on the bench behind Son Heung-min and Harry Kane for Tottenham. I don't know whether it's necessarily any different. Because even, let's be honest, did anyone, when he was signed under this Jose Mourinho team, knowing how important Kane and Son were, did any of us think he was going straight into the team? I thought he would feature more than he has. I thought he would feature more than he has as well. But then my point about him not going straight into the team is that then maybe that feeds a mentality of where it's actually no different to being at Real Madrid. You're just on the bench for a different team. And for a guy who's maybe not, you know, he's not Pierre-Emil Hoiberg. Come on, lads, I bloody love it. Send me on for five minutes, gaffer. I'll kick people. Come on, give it me. He's not bothered. You could see he's, you know, at Marine. I know it was even Marine, but he's he's having a laugh. He's having fun with it. That's fine. But he's not. That- the, the, the thing with that is, it took Ndombele a whole year to to kind of get into Josie's uh, good books. There's it, it, a waste of time with Gareth Bale. It's be a waste of time completely. It's high standards that he's got to reach, and I just can't imagine him turning up to Tottenham training on loan, knowing he's behind Son and Kane, knowing that he's a super sub, and going right. I'm gonna absolutely you know, kill myself in training to prove to the gaffer that I'm worth it. And then it's just, and then it's a self-fulfilling sad cycle to me. I, I, that's, it's not, it's, it's a theory. It's a theory, but that's uh, it's, perfectly uh, plausible. Yeah. I think personally, probably fitness issues are a big part of it too. You know, he's had calf problems. He's maybe, I don't know, maybe he's just slightly restrained. He's maybe slightly within himself, even in training. Um, and as you say, that's not what Josie wants to see. It it maybe echoes the the Pogba Jose dynamic though, and and it it's that question when you've got a resource, you know, that's got talent, a personnel resource that's so potentially good. As a manager, what do you do to to maximise it, you know, and how much is it the responsibility of that of that player? And if he's there, and he's and and there's this there's this problem with. Um, Attacking football and, and and you know not having much in the second half of games, isn't it Jose's job to try and get him out of this this mood that he might be in of of, of let's say fair? Isn't it, isn't it Jose's Jose's job to you know to weaponize him or whatever for want of a better word? That's what a manager does, isn't it? Listen, Jose Mourinho pre-match comments, you know, asked about Meza Özil, who said he'd rather retire than than play for Spurs, and he said with a really angry face. Who says Spurs want to sign Meza Ozil? He's got the Welsh Meza Ozil sitting on his bench, frankly, isn't he? Paying him 300 grand a week, 400 grand a week to do absolutely nothing. Anyway, we'll move on from Tottenham Hotspur. Hopefully, for Gareth Bale's sake, he gets some 
some minutes and some fitness under his belt as well because Tottenham do need him at the moment. Imagine that, not even coming on, needing a goal against the side in the bottom three. But credit to Fulham. They played fantastically well. Five draws in a row for them. They're in the bottom three, of course, as are Sheffield United. Bottom of the table, but they got their first win. Uh, They beat Newcastle United and their fans were incensed by it. They were beaten by a side who hadn't won a game all season and they were dominated for long periods. Newcastle are now without a win in eight games in all competitions and that has increased the pressure on their manager, Steve Bruce. Earlier on, I caught up with the Times football writer, Martin Hardy, about the situation in the northeast, and I asked him how he thought the Newcastle fans were feeling. <laughs> Um, well, in the northeast today, the, the skies are grey. It's thrown it down with rain, uh, and that's a pretty good representative, I think, of the of the mood of Newcastle's supporters at the moment. Um, I, this, I think there's been a, a, an underlying feeling that it could go wrong for 18 months since Steve Bruce was appointed, and it kind of reached um, that nadir on uh, Tuesday night at Sheffield United when Newcastle became the first team to be beaten by Sheffield United this season. And that's opened the floodgates for the the criticism and for the angst and for the anger. And you're probably talking 13 years of frustration as well. It's not all just on Steve Bruce. Um, it's always, you know, there's always the context to where the frustration comes from. And between 1994 and 2004, which is not that long ago, Newcastle finished in the top six, seven out of 11 seasons. Since 2007 and a new owner came in, the there's there's been the gradual erosion of of that's that stature for the football club um and to be beaten by the the bottom team on tuesday night uh sent everybody kind of spiraling that bit further down i don't think it's great surprise there's certainly plenty of anger and frustration um in the northeast they love the newcastle fans love the football club it's a sense of great pride uh, and at the minute it's it's a source of great frustration Steve Bruce's approach as well. Tell, tell me about that because lots of fans have been talking about the way that they play and, and, a, and a lack of ambition. Do you, do you think that approach will change from Steve Bruce? Well, that, this is this is one of the big, big questions. that Since Steve Bruce came in, he, he has continually said he wants the team to play higher up the pitch, which is a phrase that is now starting to kind of uh, frustrate the fans in that it, it it, it, there's a repetition of the phrase, but the team isn't playing further up the pitch. Now, as long as Newcastle are getting results, which they were at the start of the season when, when they beat Burnley, um, they went six top. There was a win at West Ham. There was a win against Burnley. There was a win against Everton. As long as Newcastle win, then Steve Bruce has a league table as, he, as his backup. But the metrics beyond that are, have never been great since he took over. So uh, you might not like expected goals, but Newcastle are at the bottom. The possession statistics are bottom. Um, the the, the, the uh, succession of passes over ten uh, over ten passes is more or less bottom. Um, the creation of chances, the, the the time spent in the opposition's third. These are all statistics that are really poor. Now we are eighteen months into Steve Bush's reign. This is one of the things um, that, that that needs to be said. This is not the start of his time at the club, and. Um, what you are tr- what you are hoping is that Newcastle become a more expansive side. So Alan St. Maximin is in there, Ryan Fraser is in there, Callum Wilson is in there. Now I know Fraser has missed games through injury and now suspension, and St. Maximin has had a problem with COVID. So so that natural flair has gone out of the team. What you are looking for, and, and, and there's a there's a kind of a methodology that a modern manager will look to 
Um, that's perhaps what Newcastle fans aren't seeing and what they'd like to see. I, you know, having spoke to Steve at length, he doesn't like playing five at the back, which is what they've gone back to. Three central defenders, that's what they've gone back to. Following a meeting, funny enough, with the players uh, that we revealed in Times uh, in the Times yesterday, online yesterday in, in the paper this morning, that's not how he wants to play, but that came after a defeated Brentford in the Cup when they were really poor. So it's like the comfort blanket of playing five at the back but it means they're a little bit short of front. Now, from there, you have to have a greater, a greater style. Newcastle fans have been brought up watching stylistic football, not, not successful football. You know, nothing's been won since the, the, the last league title was 1927, the last FA Cup was 1955. So it's not an expectation of success, but there is an, is an expectation of style. In the 80s, it was Keegan Beardsley, Waddle, Paul Gascoigne. In the 90s, Shearer, Sprayer, Ferdinand. Ginola, Beardsley again, you can rattle through these names. But for the last 10 years, that star, that, that, that real big star that the, the fans have always um, yeah, adored and um, enjoyed watching, that's one of the elements that Ashley's kind of moved the club away from. Now, in going back to the likes of St. Maxim, and I think the idea of buying Almiron was to get that as well, was to add that infusion of flair at the minute Benitez, Benitez's pragmatism has not been developed under the Bruce era yet. And I know he wants to do it, but he hasn't done it. And, that, and that's one of the causes of great frustration. Will it change? Well, Alan St. Maximin is still recovering from COVID. Phrase is now suspended. There's a real lack of confidence inside the squad. The forthcoming fixtures aren't easy. Arsenal away. Then you've got Leeds again playing a kind of football that Newcastle fans wish their team played. So it's not going to be very easy in the forthcoming weeks. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the evidence so far would suggest that Newcastle aren't going to start suddenly playing with a great deal of flair. But you might, in, in, in a very good centre forward like Callum Wilson, that might be the get out of jail card. It might be. I'm not saying it will be. Do you feel like Newcastle's stuck on a bit of a merry-go-round every couple of years, similar stories, whether it be the managers, the owners, lack of investment, the way they're playing? Since Steve Bruce took over at Newcastle as manager, Newcastle spent over £100 million on players. The first batch that arrived, Joe Linton, St Maximin and Emil Kraft, he had very little say in that. He knew nothing about them. Those deals were happening before he took over. Um, he then signed three players on loan in the first transfer window. And in this summer, he was given the freedom to invest. So Wilson, Fraser, Jeff Hendrick, um, and um, uh, the left back uh, from Norwich are all his signings, as well as, as bringing the back of goalkeeper. So again, another, what, 30 or £40 million pounds got spent. So, so the money does get spent. When Newcastle got relegated under um, Steve McLaren, they spent £55 million pounds in the summer on Wijnaldum, Sissoko, Mitrovic and Sean Slimbemba. And then in the January transfer window, spent another batch of money on John Joe Selvi, Andrew Town, Andrew, Andros Townsend and Henri Survey. So they do spend money. It's just they have a, their recruitment is questionable and they have a chaotic understanding with what the manager wants and the way that they want to spend money. What the reason, possibly one of the reasons there is a cycle of failure and you go back to who has been appointed manager when Mike Ashley has been in control. The first manager that he wanted was Harry Redknapp. Harry Redknapp agreed to come. And then at the last minute said, no, no, I'm going to stay at Portsmouth. Redknapp was one. The next manager that Newcastle, that 
actually wanted and appointed was Joe Kinnear. The next manager that he wanted and appointed was Alan Pardew. John Carver was given the job for a few months. The next manager they wanted and appointed was Steve McLaren. The next manager that they wanted and appointed was Steve Bruce. So that you, <laughs> you, you look at the characteristics of those managers that they have wanted and signed, and they are all very, very similar traditional English managers who will get on with the owner um, and will, you know, will generally do what they are told to do. Rafa Benitez, his people approached the club to say, look, Rafa Benitez is and can do a good job. They didn't want to give the job to Chris Hutton, but he did very well, so they had to. Kevin Keegan was a desperate move because Harry Redknapp had said no, and they, they had the gamble of giving the job to Alan Shearer for, for eight games. What perhaps one of the big problems inside the club is, since Ashley took control, those in control have never understood the history of the club. It sometimes seems they are frightened of it and they ignore it. What could have worked or what can work perhaps would be a, an imaginative, man, imaginative young manager or somebody throughout that 13-year period who would challenge um, the ownership and say, look, this is the way we want to do it. If you don't learn from your mistakes, you're condemned to keep repeating them. So Newcastle will get relegated when Steve McLaren is in charge and they've already signed the four players before he walks in the door. So the manager of the team can't say, actually, I need a command and centre-half or I need a leader. And when Steve Bruce comes back to take control and uh, after Rafa Benitez leaves, here is Joe Linton, here is St Maximin, here is Kraft. So the players are already signed before the manager arrives. That's why you have a chaotic feeling you end up back where you are now, where you have this mixed match of, of a recruitment policy. Um, but So the club does spend money, it just doesn't spend it very wisely. Very interesting. How do you think the Newcastle fans will be feeling about the prospect of relegation? Is it a real fear? <laughs> I think the Newcastle fans who watched Fulham last night were getting a bit concerned. I thought Fulham, Fulham were excellent again. Um, th- that seems like a team that's got momentum behind them. You know, that's five draws on the trot. So you look at the bottom of the Premier League table, Newcastle are falling with two... What's, um, they haven't won in the last eight games. They haven't won the last six Premier League games. And suddenly that gap has been close to seven points between Newcastle and Fulham and Fulham have a game in hand. Burnley have form and I've watched Burnley quite a bit recently and they've started playing really, really well. Um, they've got a midfield that seems to have a nice blend of creativity with McNeil. Brownlin's coming through. The two forwards are back. Barnes and Wood are fit. They're solid at the back. I know they got beat off Man United, but that's not unusual when Man United are playing away from home at the moment. So you're looking at that fight and you're thinking, Sheffield United are probably gone. West Bromwich Albion are probably gone. So there's one place up for grabs and that could well be between Newcastle, Brighton and Fulham. And that's why there is a fair bit of nerves on Tyneside at the minute. It's why so much rests on keeping Callum Wilson fit. Wilson's um, conversion record, given uh, the paucity of chances that he's had this season, has been excellent. Uh, If he's fit, Newcastle have a chance of avoiding that fight. Um, at the bottom, you would suspect Wolves will invest in January, which I don't think Newcastle will, which Steve Bruce has said. Palace might have enough with Zaha and I've been impressed with Leeds this season. So it's suddenly starting to emerge that it could be could be between three teams at the bottom of the division. And Newcastle fans are nervous because um, they've had third, they have a lack of faith in the, the owner, the MD and the manager. And that's that's not a great recipe Uh so yes, there are, there are there are considerable considerable concerns uh, about 
which division Newcastle will be playing the next season. What goes on from here? What, what will change? Do you think the January transfer window could bring some, some new faces? Um, or, or I can't see anything drastically changing apart from that. The, again, you, you have to kind of look at the history and Ashley will react in January when he thinks the team is in trouble of getting relegated. So when all the French players came, the club was in danger of getting relegated. I don't know if you remember that January when they went a bit mad and suddenly everybody was wearing tricolours instead of uh, the black and white on time. Um, and then, as I said, the last, when Newcastle got relegated under Stephen McLaren, um, there was investment in uh, John Joe Shelby and Andros Townsend, who actually turned out to be good signs for what they cost. And Townsend left pretty pretty soon after when the club got relegated. Everything that Steve Bruce has said and everything come out of the club is that there is no money to invest. All clubs are struggling in light of COVID and the impact of um, not being able to, to, to put any supporters in the ground. Whether or not the loan market can be used again, as Newcastle did last January when three players came in, I would suspect that's a possibility. Um, as I said, it, it depends how, It depends the size of the, the concern inside the boardroom. Um and they will be looking at the they are looking at the results at the moment and think thinking it's not great, but there is as I wrote yesterday there is still belief that Steve will turn the situation round. He has a good relationship with Mike Ashley, which might be to his benefit. You know, ma- managing up is very important for a manager um, as, as well as managing down. So the fact that he has a strong relationship with Ashley might mean that he can just say, "Look, I need to bring in him. I need to bring in him," and that that might be the the, the piece that. Um, keeps Newcastle in the division and guarantees the £100 million plus per year that being a Premier League team does. So, so, and Ashley's fully aware of that. And I know Steve Bruce caused controversy a couple of weeks ago when he said the remit is to stay in the Premier League. And to come back to what I said, said at the start of, start of this piece, the, the, the history of, of seven top uh, six finishes inside 11 years, that's gone. And it you know, it won't come back with Ashley. He had one successful season when they finished fifth in Alan Pardew and they failed to build on it. And the, the, the remit since then, I think deep down inside of Mike Ashley, he would like the team to do better. But it's it's a small part of his business empire and uh, he has, you know, th- th- there's been a history of, of bad decisions during his time in control. Our thanks to Martin Hardy there. I could feel the pain in his voice. Uh, he's written, of course, a lot about Newcastle as well. Um, let's get back to Tom Clark, Gregor Robertson and Jonathan Northcroft on the situation at Newcastle at the moment. Tom, how do you see it? Where do they, where do they go from here in Newcastle United? Because I think, even though it's a bit of a malaise, it's there's no real way out of it unless you invest in, in a, a better manager, better players. It doesn't seem like Mike Ashley's going to do that just yet. You're right in that sense. And it's a very difficult one. And but we, it, I think Newcastle are the classic case of people like us and the media and outside fans and the divide between that group and Newcastle fans themselves. Because it, it, I've been guilty of this myself and I did it when I watched. I've watched Newcastle's last two games. Arsenal in the FA Cup, I was watching that and thinking... This is quite spirited. This is this is quite good. You know, the depleted side, quite well organised. You know, they look threatening on the counter. Bruce has got an idea. He's working with what he's got. What's the problem? They're nearly beating Arsenal in the FA Cup away from home. Fair play. And then I watched the Sheffield United game and I thought, right, yeah, fair enough, lads. I get where you're coming from because that was absolutely dreadful. And it's almost, it's almost the bottom half of the table 
version of the same conversation as what we have with Tottenham and Jose Mourinho at times. Now, before anyone starts, I'm not saying Tottenham and Newcastle are the same. I'm not saying Steve Bruce is Jose Mourinho. My point is, I will defend Steve Bruce and Newcastle and their tactics against Man City, against Liverpool, against teams higher up the table, sitting back, trying to play on the counter. But where you then can't defend them is when they then play Sheffield United, who... They, Sheffield United were excellent. That's the best they've played all season by a long way. But they were still a team devoid of confidence. They were still a team who, even against 10 men, sat back and asked Newcastle to come on and attack them. And Newcastle, but they from the very start, they didn't seem to be competing for second balls. They just looked so cautious and scared even against Sheffield United this team that are statistically the worst ever or you know whatever whatever it is and that's that's where it becomes so depressing and where you can't defend Steve Bruce regardless of the money or anything like that it's when it comes to these games that even me and the anti-football brigade can't defend him um, and, and so the it's you ask you ask how does it come out of the cycle it comes out of the cycle by these games happening because the more these games happen, the more you don't pick up points against Sheffield United, bottom of the table, the more you look completely devoid of any creative ideas against these teams. That's when you then start talking about your job and change of manager. Uh, Johnny Martin said, you know, it's not about winning trophies at Newcastle. It's been a long time, but they are used to a style. Uh, he spoke about some of the great eras that they've had. Who, who brings a style to Newcastle United when you've got a, a squad of players like that? I know. I mean, they've been really hampered by the loss of St. Maximum. Uh, he was the he was the watchable player. He was the, the the little sprinkling of fantasy in the team, and it was a very small sprinkling of fantasy. But without him, um, I mean, they are the worst team to watch, I think, in the Premier League at the moment. Uh, sometimes you play the game of, you know, who just who 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 would you like to sort of lose from the league just from an entertainment point of view. And, and uh, I have to be honest, the Newcastle club I've loved reporting on, um, but I guess that would be associated with the Newcastle of 15, 20 years ago in a full St. James's Park. It's not the Newcastle of now. Um, they're hard to watch. As Tom said, they're very passive in games. They're, they're playing, uh, you know, nine, ten men behind the ball and... and they don't actually have an outlet to, to nick something when they when when they get it. And it's sad watching Steve Bruce because he has always he's never been a footballing romantic as a manager, I don't think, but he's always produced pretty watchable teams with with something going forward. And he's what he's always done really well is through his personality, created a a, a positivity among a fan base and a positivity among the dress in the in the dressing room. And he just Newcastle looks like it's defeating him. Probably means too much for him. He, I wouldn't have expected Steve Bruce to be presiding over a low point of morale for a football club, if you know what I mean. That's that's anti what he is as a has always been as a person, but it's it's ground him down. And Newcastle looked like a ground down team. And if that's how I feel as a neutral, I can only imagine how painful it is for people like Martin and, and the fans. I feel sorry. I feel yeah. I just feel sorry for Newcastle fans because it, it is a cycle. It's like they get they get told that they're kind of deluded they've got expectations above themselves and it's, this is, could be one of the most vibrant powerful clubs in the country undoubtedly and like a you know a little 
bit of good fortune or or fate would have made would have made them that when other teams are being bought by you know oligarchs and blooming nation states essentially. So and obviously they very nearly were. <laughs> um, but there's just no ambition. There's no ambition on the pitch. There's no ambition. Uh, in the boardroom, there's no ambition at any level of the club, and that's what's so dispiriting. And then to hear the, you know, the frequent musings of certain people in the in the media and, and pundits and whatnot saying that, you know, they're surviving. What do you expect? And Steve Bruce is doing a brilliant job. And you know, there is actually a, an element of truth in the fact that Steve Bruce has done a decent job to keep them to, to keep them in the Premier League and to make it look fairly comfortable at times. And then they have these downward spells where. It's just so depressing because, as I say, there's no ambition. There's no, there's no excitement. There's no. They're just, they're just there. Newcastle are just there in the Premier League. They just exist. They don't have. There's nothing. There's nothing more to it, and that's really quite sad. When you know, that's really not what football should be about. It should be about ambition. I think at any level. The Newcastle fans that I've spoken to, they expect a top half team, and I, I guess anyone my age, is used to them at least. You know throwing the kitchen sink at games, particularly when they're a goal down. You know, that's what we've grown up with. And maybe we should be expecting more. I wonder if Steve Bruce will be the man to turn things around. Up next, we're going to discuss hugging, celebration in the Premier League. Not much of that going on at St. James's Park of late. Um, But if you want to get involved with the Times and the Sunday Times, you can get yourself a digital subscription. You can get it on all of your devices for our award-winning journalism. Sign up today. You'll get yourself one month free. Go online, search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game to get yourself started. Up next, let's discuss Aston Villa. Well, not really Aston Villa. Just to tell you, their Premier League game with Everton at the weekend has now been postponed. Uh, They'll play their rescheduled game with Newcastle on Saturday, January the 23rd. But we wanted to talk about... COVID-19, of course, that's affected Villa at the moment. And it's affecting football in an interesting way. There's a debate at the moment around hugging. Handshakes, high fives and hugs must be avoided under new Premier League guidelines. But there were still plenty of them this week as goals were celebrated in the Premier League. And that is despite players and managers telling us beforehand that things would change. Gregor, you've written about this in the Times. How feasible is it for players not to hug after scoring a goal? Um, I think, I think basically the the gist of my article, I think, was that it's reasonable to ask players to try not to to celebrate and hug and and you know huddle together like they so frequently do, um, but don't punish them if they're unable to do it because of the kind of joyous nature of scoring a goal in the moment. And the kind of feeling that 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 gives everyone. So I also think it's a bit of a kind of spurious debate in that when the players, you know, we've discussed this before, when the players share a changing room for 45 minutes before the game, having travelled together, although, you know, nowadays they do it on two or three coaches instead of one, they do their best, but still, they're indoors for 45 together, half time for 15, after the game for half an hour, they grapple it, corners, throw-ins, uh, free kicks, everything, that that we're focusing on this one minute aspect of the game. And then what also makes it a spurious debate is the fact that if we're seeing footballers hug or celebrate a goal, that somehow influences the rest of the public and, makes, and sort of <laughs> encourages them not to socially distance. I think that is ludicrous, personally. So... 
it's like another, it seems to be the latest of many ways in which footballers seem to be being shamed at the moment. Um, and I understand as well as anyone how difficult you know 2020 has been and how none of us can see our loved ones none of us none of us can embrace uh but there is no correlation between you know being able, you know granddads and grannies not being able to hug their grandkids and footballers celebrating I, I just said that as well i also said that you know all the protocols everything as strict as possible all of that is fine but when the whistle blows until the whistle blows again for in the 90th minute plus don't mess with anything in the game. That's personally, that's my view. Even, you know, embracing is, is one thing, you know, a kiss on the cheek, you know, we've seen Gary Neville and Paul Scholes get even closer than that. I mean, are you, are you sure, you know, are you sure we can't interfere with that minute detail, you know, during a pandemic, Tom, what do you think? I, re- I remember talking about the pandemic and fans in stadiums on a previous show and I'm reminded of something Alison said about why fans aren't in stadiums and it's not to do it wasn't necessarily to do with the safety measures alone it was to do with projection and perception and the fact that football as we've said and as isn't highlighted enough as the flip side of football is taking a kicking for hugging each other is that football is one of the few things that is going on in the country that is not a global pandemic and is giving something for people to talk about and to enjoy and to watch. Semi-normal. Semi-normal. It's an element of normality, correct, yeah. Uh, but but with that, and Alison's point was you can't have fans in the stadiums because it's on telly all the time and then people will start going, well, hang on a minute, why, is there, why are all those people sat next to each other and hugging? And we've reached this point now where the global narrative of the pandemic or the, the nationwide one is of a rampant variant and a hospital's and then the mirror is, what's the only normal thing going on? Okay, football. Look at them. They're hugging. What the hell are they doing? I had to cancel my Christmas plans. And it's this its this extreme thing of, you know, it's the same as the same as our rows about anti-football. It's kind of just the like, come on, can we not, can we not just get along on this one? It's, it's, it's my, it's my mantra for the, for the, for the year and for the season. Let's just get along. But the one thing I would say, and Tony Cascarino in the article with Gregor today, they both, they both make interesting points and I kind of found myself almost agreeing with both of them because Tony Cascarino's point was footballers could help themselves a little bit by almost taking this attention and turning it on itself. We've seen it over the years, lots of choreographed celebrations and things like that. There's an opportunity here and uh, Matt Launton in the Times has written only just in the last half an hour or so about how the Premier League are going to speak to clubs again today. I only hope that this weekend we can see a bit of, not fun, you don't want to label it as fun because it's in response to a global pandemic, but an acknowledgement from the footballers of, we've listened, look, we're not hugging, but we're celebrating with a little like, you know, some choreographed elbow celebrations that, you know, that are never a bit of a laugh. And then we can, and then we don't give the politicians who should be doing their jobs a chance to kick footballers who've been doing theirs and providing us with some much needed respite. Only thing I'd say, yeah, that that's you know, I kind of said that it's reasonable to ask players to do that, and they should, they, you know, why not be inventive? But if Regulon scores a goal in the last second there and it's not chopped out, if that had continued and the linesman didn't raise his flag, I don't think it would have been the same celebration as Harry Kane fist bumping earlier in the game. If, if Crawley, Crawley. Crawley had the the game of their lives against Leeds. It's unrealistic in that moment when it is a really kind of 
you know, a huge goal, something that is either wins a game or is like a <laughs> an epic moment in the FA Cup or something. It's all I'm saying is don't shame them if they are un- unable or they forget. It's not their fault. It's like we can try, but football is an emotion, emotion, emotional game, and sometimes it it overpowers you. Yeah, that's it. I I agree, but I think for for those 90th minute moments for us to be for us not necessarily me but for the wider public to be able to excuse those moments when you rightly make that point about passion Phil Foden and the lads in the 20th minute at home to Brighton they need they need they need to bail out Regulon for the 90th minute where if he scores they can go mental or Billy Sharp when he scores his 100th goal that might give the win Phil Foden in the 20th minute needs to bail them out by doing a elbow so that then, you know, we're all doing it. I'm doing it, editing, looking at pictures of celebrations. The Times website has a picture of Phil Foden and Kevin De Bruyne elbowing fist bump type thing. And then maybe the picture of the last minute winner, Cuddle, is okay because the balance is there. That's that's sort of what I would I'm not saying yeah, you. Pre- I'm not asking you specifically. No, I think, but the, I think also, you, also the interesting thing is that this question, to, isn't it? It's being this question has even been asked. That's the other interesting thing. Somebody is is asking politicians about footballers again. Why is I, this question being asked? I, I don't like it either. I don't like that, that question, and I've, I've defended before the all the brilliance that footballers are doing, and even lower down the pyramid. You know, I said on a recent show, my dad would have a very even a, as a retired man would have an even narrower frame of the vision of the world if Lincoln stopped playing football. But it's it's not allowing those people, it's not allowing the politicians to have that say by being able to show the fist bumps and the elbows and a bit more of what Harry Kane did. There needs to be a bit more of that from footballers to help them out, help you out making your argument, help me out trying to hand a half make my argument somewhere in the middle. Help, help me help you. <laughs> help me help you. Let's all get along. But, I, and, but, but to do that, we need a bit more of, bit more of what Tony Cascarino said, a bit more of choreographed, that's what we need this weekend. Johnny, I, I just want to put to you a point from the sports minister, Nigel Huddleston. Uh, he tweeted to say, everyone in the country has had to change the way they interact with people and ways of working. Footballers are no exception. COVID secure guidelines exist for football. Footballers must follow them and football authorities enforce them strictly. Is part of this about the messaging, the perception and a little bit of playing politics? It's entirely about the the optics, as they say. It's entirely about ensuring um, footballers are seen to be, for want of a better word, seen to be suffering in the same way as um, as the rest of the population. And that's just in order to satisfy a public mood, I'm afraid. Um, but that's where we are, and I think that's what both the guys are say are talking about in a in a different way. I mean, I was looking at, at figures on this. There've been since restart. There've been fifty thousand five hundred COVID tests for, for Premier League footballers. You know they're tested all the time. Fifty thousand tests, and there's been one hundred and eighty-four positives. So that's one. That's nearly one in three hundred, which is you know one in thirty people supposed to have COVID in London, and and far worse in some areas. So the the the, 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 the and, the, and football has been hogging since the start. So this, the risk of footballers getting COVID as they're behaving at the moment, is is pretty minimal. So there's no health issue here. or There's no health issue, but the health issue is not what's driving this. What's driving this is is how it is seen. When you go to the game as a, as a, as a journalist, you have to wear a mask, you, but you sit in a stand, you know, two metres from people. 
Um, if you lower your mask at any point, and I have to do quite a lot because my glasses keep steaming up and you blow it, let your nose breathe. But there's quite often stewards telling you to put it back on. And you realize that that's in case the camera's panned to the stands because, again, you know, you're outdoors and you're sitting two meters from somebody else. It's entirely about how it looks. And it was interesting, you know, I, I, I like Tom, I kind of agreed with both Gregor and Tony in different ways. But reading the Condon articles, you know, you've got readers are talking about how much footballers earn. Readers are talking about how thick footballers are. Readers are talking about how stupid footballers, footballers as a sport. It's, it's, a, it's about public anger and it's about the public or, or politicians feeling that the public want are angry and, and they want to see footballers have to suffer the same way as the rest of us. At the same time, the public want football to go on because they want something to watch on TV and it's part of this conflicted I think quite childish relationship we've got with football in this country where we're obsessed by it and we, we hate, we hate it at the same time, you know, people are obsessed by it and hate it. And let's just be honest about it. It's not a health thing, you know, to, to read that football's hogging is shaming the NHS. What a lot of nonsense it, this, but it may be from a pragmatic point of view. And I think it's what Tony's saying and what Tom's saying, just don't give that lobby the chance to object. It, that is exactly it. But it's also, to take your point about the money thing, I often have that argument with friends and people who maybe don't follow sport and be like, how can you write go so gushingly about footballs? It's disgusting. They have all this money. And I go down the long road of trying to explain the finances and it's about a business and da-da-da-da. In order to to win that argument, you'd have to pull apart the entire footballing system and start again from scratch and change the finances. To win this argument, all footballers have to do is come up with a few choreographed celebrations. Now, I'm not saying that's fair. I'm not saying that's right. But this is an of all the extreme and polarizing arguments in the world at the minute, in politics, in sport, in football, this is one I think footballers can win quite easily this weekend with a very minimal response to what, what is being asked of them and being shouted unfairly at them. But I think this is one they can win quite easily this weekend. With, with that regard, I don't think Pep's comments were helpful because he was saying you can't expect us to be able to change. And that it's that message that the public don't want to hear because everyone's changing their lives. I don't know. Did he say that? Did he not say, did he not say I'm not sure we can change? That's a difference. No, there's a difference. I think there is a difference because he's saying you know, we we may be we we may be we may try, but I can't guarantee that we'll be able to. And that's kind of what I was saying because there is a there are moments in a game where you lose control, and like it was, we, as the way we describe football as escapism, it's the same for players. Despite they win, despite them earning millions of pounds and that everyone resents so much, that's still their ninety minutes of escapism, same as it is for us. So there are moments that you don't. You lose yourself completely, and you you know you might have done a poor choreograph. You might have used that in the first goal, and you're scoring a 90, 93rd minute winner or whatever. It's, that's that's going to be tough. So all I'm saying is yes. I think we're probably agreeing. Try your best, try your very best, and come up with something inventive if you if you can. But for everyone else, do not shame them if they if they're unable to to do it in the in the most euphoric moments. Johnny, there are some that argue. You know, it's not football unless there are celebrations, goal celebrations. You know, there is no point in many ways unless we get that emotion after a goal. Did you agree? We've gone from loving Chorley and their dressing room scenes to hating Chorley for their dressing room scenes 
you know, we at the same time want the we love football because it's a it's a bit of emotion in our lives. It's a bit of spontaneity in our lives, and and yet we're angry because there's a pandemic and we don't have that in other parts of our lives, and we don't like seeing it. So I think there's a conflicted view of it. Of course, football has to have uh, have has to have emotions. But I mean, I wrote about this at the weekend. You go to the games. The truth is, these games are pretty sterile, and we're pretending otherwise. You know, these, this VAR and then the, the pandemic has stripped a lot of spontaneity and emotion out of football already. Task players to not celebrate is another sad step. If that's what some people want for football to continue, I kind of say, you know, give it to them. It's sad, but give it to them because we need it to continue. As Johnny says, you know, watching these games and watching... Uh, linking games on iFollow and things where you don't have the sky red button options of fan noise and all this kind of stuff and you can just hear one of the coaches bellowing instructions from the sideline. I do feel like the, the, there is an opportunity there. You've you've lost the fans, you've lost the passion. It, there's there's an opportunity there to to not to not celebrate and just to it, it, it it's sacrificing that for a greater gain, which is not giving people an opportunity to kick footballers. You know, some of the guys have said that there in the comments on our website. And you can tell from some of the comments that they aren't, they aren't even football fans. They're people who maybe don't like footballers and have seen an opportunity to comment on footballers doing wrong and doing something bad. But that's, that's okay. A lot of people do that. Um, I just, I just, I just think like you know, it was, it was what day are we? Thursday. It was Tuesday night, and I was speaking to one of the guys I was editing the website with late in the night, and the games were happening, and we were looking at updating our story, and we searching through the pictures that all the photographers are filing, and if you looked for goal celebration, the option for us as editors to publish pictures of players celebrating whilst hugging, there were loads of them, so many. The option for us to present a counter argument there weren't any and that's all I'm getting at I think you can it's just a small win if on Saturday and Sunday we can publish both sides and we can say the caption 90th minute winner they got a bit carried away did the lads but then you also have the goal in the 10th minute elbow you've got to sacrifice that you've got to sacrifice the celebration I wonder who's going to be celebrating come the end of the season. Let's talk the title race next because there's a massive game coming up this weekend in the Premier League. It sees the leaders, Manchester United, travel to their northwest rivals, Liverpool at Anfield. And Manchester United are top for the first time after New Year's Day since they won the title back in 2013. So it's a it's an old, fe- familiar feeling, but it has been some time for their supporters. They're elated at the moment. And the game against Liverpool is always massive for those that support Manchester United. But Jonathan, I wonder going into this, how much pressure is on Liverpool at the moment? Because this could be a a game that really turns the perception of of how we see them as title contenders, given all that's gone before in terms of injuries. I agree with that. I'm I'm really intrigued from Liverpool point of view about this game more than the United point of view. Because Liverpool have been... it's, it's, It's almost a year now since... They went to Watford and, and got beaten 3-0. And before that point, they were winning every single game. Since then, they've won just about half their Premier League games. So it's quite an extended period where they've no longer been the all-conquering 
side. They've gone. They went. They went out of the Champions League to Atletico Madrid in that time. Um, had a couple of inc- unconvincing Champions League nights as well this this year. So we all know the reasons. We know the injuries of Van Dijk, the, the 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 team with great intensity that's now been asked to play. You know, during COVID times, where there's not so many training sessions, playing so many games, blah blah blah. All of that's sort of excusable, but. I think this, there comes a point where you'd have to say there's something more serious here. And and if they if they get beaten by Manchester United and they're six points behind, it probably is it probably is question time. They've got so much in the bank and deserve to have so much in the bank because of all they've achieved and all Jurgen Klopp's prowess and all those players are fantastic. Um, that they, they 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 do deserve the benefit of the doubt, but it will start to be stripped away no matter what the injury problems are. If if they lose, they've, they, the fact they've left, had nine days rest—that's the thing. You know, people are talking about this being perfect timing for United. Yes, but also Liverpool have had nine days rest, so in some ways it couldn't have fallen better for Liverpool. But if after nine days rest they go down to United, you know, th- there's a problem there. What do you think the approach will be, Tom, um, from both sides? Do you think Liverpool say it's a game for them that a point is is and it's been a long time since I've said this about them, but a point is something they'll take. No chance. I can't see Jurgen Klopp doing that. Not when you know he's got people like Johnny questioning his credentials and uh, <laughs> <laughs> suggesting this side. No. Um, he'll be desperate to prove him wrong. Typical headline writer. Take me out of context. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I think this game is uh, fascinating, although I say that about Newcastle against Sheffield United. So I'll be more specific. The reason it's fascinating is that I think, as Gregor constantly talks about, Manchester United's defence is just not the strongest. Liverpool's attack is excellent. Manchester United now have a very deadly attack playing against a depleted and injury-stricken defence to me, this game comes down to midfield and ultimately what midfield Ole Gunnar Solskjaer selects. We talked in a recent podcast about in these big games, United not landing a punch on arrival, not 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 really making a stand. And it'll be fascinating whether he picks Paul Pogba, won't it? Because he's been excellent in the last few games. Solskjaer's de facto you know, system has often been Fred and McTominay. If he picks Pogba and those guys, it means you have to sacrifice one of Cavani, Rashford, Martial, Fernandez. And but if he can win that midfield battle, I wonder whether he can control the game a bit more and not have to do his Ole backs to the wall, pump it long to Rashford into the channels, which we've said recently is just it's a bit tired. Maybe it'll work, but it, I'd wonder if it's a bit tired. So I'd be interested in it. I, I, I would start Pogba because I think this is an opportunity for Manchester United. You, 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 you'll lose nothing really by losing to Liverpool, but having a go, I think, Solskjaer at this stage. He's, he's, at, he's at the arc of his, you know, we talk about the Solskjaer arc. He's at the top of the arc now, isn't he? He's on a good run. They're literally top of the table. He loses nothing reputationally or in terms of spirit confidence by having a go and maybe losing 3-1 or 3-2 or whatever. Where he will lose is if again, next time next week, we're talking about 2-0 Liverpool, Man United, two shots on target. So I'd be interested in what people think United should go for. Do do we all start Pogba? I don't. And I think he'll change system, um, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer as well. I think he'll try and spring another surprise. And if he wins the game, we'll all be calling him a footballing genius. But I think... 
we might see three at the back for Man United because I think it's the wide areas for Liverpool where they have so much joy. Mane and Robertson, Trent and Salah down the other side, um, overloading. And look, I don't want to see Luke Shaw and, and Wan-Bissaka in that position. I think Man United have been found out there before. So I think we might see three at the back in the shape of Shaw, Maguire and Bailly. Wing-backs, um, Tellez and Wan-Bissaka. And um, I think the two holders will be Fred and McTominay, Bruno Fernandes, and then they'll go Rashford and Martial as a front two. And I think that's probably going to be his way of, of getting at least a draw out of the game because I think if he goes more open, I, I just don't see at the moment Man United being on the level of Liverpool toe-to-toe, even with injuries. Um, I think they're the side that's going to have to be more defensive. I think Liverpool will dominate possession. Um, and I think with four at the back, Liverpool's quality in the front areas will, will tell. So I think he'll try and, and you know, for at least the, the first hour, you know, stay in the game. And that means a more defensive outlook. But um, I'm happy to take other other views. I think both of them will be happy with the point. The kind of, you know, Liverpool look a bit disorientated just now. Um and Man United, I think keeping that momentum is important because it's, it's a really peculiar situation. The Man United are top of the league and there's still, people are like, this is in a weird season, this is just the, the latest weird thing that's happened because well, I, well, I still don't know what they are. Like, <laughs> I know we've talked about this a lot. We don't, well, I don't know what they are. I don't, And I can't see them playing this kind of percentage football I can't see them staying there for the rest of the season. Um, and, you know, when we say we don't know what Man United are, some people say it doesn't matter for the top of the league. But I think ultimately, the best teams, you do know what they are and you do know how they're going to perform. You do know how they're going to go out and win games and dominate the ball. Um, that's how you win league titles now in the Premier League, I think. Uh, so, look, Man United still got a lot of convincing to do of a lot of people, which is, as I say, is very odd considering the top of the league. So, the longer they can stay there, and which they would do with a draw, um, the better for Man United. The longer they can stay in that race, the better for them. Johnny, we spoke about the, the pressure on Liverpool going into this game. How do you see it from the Manchester United perspective? I, I've, I've talked about them being quite defensive, but in many ways, is this a game where they can play with, with freedom knowing the pressure is on the opposition? Well, I was listening to you outlining what Solskjaer might do and I was actually thinking yeah he's, he's probably right I mean that would be the the pragmatic um, approach and maybe it would be the right approach given that I think if if United are going to win the league and, and they've got a chance in this weird season it'll be because they're they're better at beating the run-of-the-mill teams than than anyone else and that's because over the years they've managed to with that wonderful recruitment policy um, acquire a lot of different match-winning type players who don't always play well together, but they've got a lot of options to win games. And in those smaller, quote-unquote, games, they prevail. So they don't have to beat Liverpool, excuse me, to win the league. They they could do with not losing the game, though. Um, And I think that might actually be, you might be right, and that's how well they should approach it. If you're asking, would I play Paul Pogba? I would certainly play Paul Pogba. I think if you don't play him now, what's the what's the point of of all that you've gone through as a club to keep him there? Uh, and he was, he, you know, he has been on terrific form. The, the 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 question would be, you know, he's been on terrific form because he hasn't been pressed, I suppose, which he's not very good at dealing with, and and Liverpool will press him. But I think you could have trusted him, and 
and give him a go and, and probably play one fewer forward. Um, I suspect you might be right, though, Hugh, that, he'll, that, that Ole will try and play safe and try and get a point. The, the only problem with that, and I'm, not, I, I'm fully prepared for um, Hugh to be absolutely bang on with his selection, but it's something we've talked about before, and I've had the argument thrown back at me when I've been defending Gareth Southgate, is that that, that approach plays to your weaknesses. Even though you're playing more defenders, you're not playing your in-form star player in Paul Pogba. Even Bruno Fernandes, we spoke about lately, looks a bit tired, looks a bit frustrated by things. Anthony Martial, for me, I've not seen him play well for months. I think you could make the case for playing four at the back, still playing Fred and McTominay and saying to them, look, if they get wide, let the fullbacks go wide and you drop in and fill in the spaces. Well, the, 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 positive, the positive approach would be to say Liverpool have had problems in midfield, you know, big problems with having to use Fabinho and, and recently Henderson at the back. So they've been they've been stripped of, of that um, that midfield intensity and, and their ability to win the ball back in midfield that they, they, they there's been a foundation for so long. And their wide players haven't, you know, particularly Trent, haven't been haven't been that good. Manny's in a bit of a slump. So the, the positive approach would be to look at Liverpool and say, this is a moment that we can get at them. And yeah, play, play Paul Pogba, play fullback, attacking fullbacks. But and also play someone like Cavani, who we've seen through various analysis match of the day, is an actual striker who makes movements that bothers centre-halves, which I don't think Anthony Martial does. And if you're going to, whoever Liverpool decides to play centre-back, they're not Virgil van Dijk and they're not going to want to play against someone like Edison Cavani. And fine, it, it might sound a bit mad, but moving Bruno Fernandes out wide on one flank with Rashford on another, what are you going to do by doing that? You're going to get Fernandes space because that's where Liverpool leave space. So you then get your most creative player space and you say, right, Fred McTominay, kick everyone, win the ball back. Right, Paul, your job, get the ball, spin, give it to those three in front of you. Let's have a go. I just think we're talking about Solskjaer. This is a unique position. He's never been in this position, has he? He's never had a better chance to prove me wrong. And that <laughs> is to prove what an idiot I am for saying he was going to get sacked. But, but you, you have to look at the table. There. But Tom, Tom, Tom it, 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 listen, it's not a cup game. It's a title race. And if Manchester United are in the title race, they are playing their biggest rivals currently, the team just behind them in the league. And if they win... Yes, I understand if they win. I know they're not going to approach the game trying to win, but they're not going to do the thing that's going to be most likely for them to lose either. You know, they're going to try and steer clear of that. So they're not going to have a completely open game against the team as good as Liverpool with as great players as they've got. And I could see them playing a diamond and I certainly could see them playing Edinson Cavani, particularly as I think Anthony Martial picked up a knock at the weekend. Um, But I, I just think... And, and playing for a point is not what I'm trying to say here, but I just think prag- pragmatic against Liverpool is the sensible option. The games are never particularly great anyway, whether you play open or whether you play um, more defensively from Manchester United's perspective. So look, a, a point for me is a, an absolutely fantastic result. I will bite your hand off for a boring nil-nil right now. Just to be clear, my my idea is based on pragmatism. I don't think you can. I don't think you can pick a team with Fred and McTominay in it and suggest that it's not pragmatic. Because I mean, those those two guys sitting at the base of the midfield. But it, it's just. A, I'm just trying to think of a variation on a theme that's not just so transparent. We talked about it last time with the with the other big games Man United have got. It's 
just a little tweak, just something. And as I say, whether it's play Pogba, whether it's move Bruno wide, whether it's play Cavani, something. He's got, surely this is a chance to come up with something. He can still be pragmatic. He can still be solid. Just, just please, just shock us. Come up with something that's not, not what you uh, you outlined. In, you know the exact eleven <laughs> that you picked t- five ten minutes ago. If if Pogba plays, it's a big game for him because you know he has been in good form and he has kind of been the difference in in several games for Man United now. But he's, can he can he go and do it against Liverpool? Can he do it against the title rivals? Um, Let's have a look. Then we'll finally know. Yeah, then we'll uh, yeah, finally I, I, know. I'm we'll finally know what Paul Pogba is. This, that this that, is that moment against Burnley when he kind of bounded through the middle and kind of charged, just kind of like bounced off someone in midfield and went between the two of them. You see him bounding through like that. And you think, what? Well, you know, he's a great athlete, technically brilliant. Just we need to see it more. We need to see it in the biggest games. So, yeah, let's see if he's got it. Jonathan, I'll roll out the red carpet now. Credit to, to Oli Gunnar Solskjaer. The floor is yours. <laughs> of course. I mean, well, God, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of groaning because where, where, where do you start with this one? But, you know, all along, I've, I've, I've tried to make the point that um, there's different ways to be a manager. Um, we've got used in the modern world to seeing philosophies, and, um, you know, brands of football. And in fact, there's an article today in one of our rival publications that, that explores this. What is the Ollie blueprint? He's not that type of manager. We're not going to see it. But there's an old-fashioned way to manage, which is try and get a lot of good players on the pitch. Keep the camp motivated. Keep them happy. Keep it relatively simple. Um, and you're going to win games if you've got better players in the opposition. And that's kind of what Ollie's trying to do. And... I don't devalue that. I think there's still a place for that. And, and you have to judge by progress. You know, this is a guy that took over when United were absolutely struggling post-Mourinho. Um, has now got them top of the league two and a half years later. Has been in Champions League quarterfinals. Um, has given us some, you know, he's got, got lots of semi-finals. Okay, not to final. There's been lots of progress. He's doing it in a way that maybe is a managerial style slightly from the past, but as I say, it's still got some value. And you know, let let's see where it goes. Let's see where it goes from here. Um, he is a survivor, isn't he? And and you, if nothing else, you've got to give him credit for I suppose, the personal. <laughs> I've nothing else to say about Ollie. Sorry, that's it. <laughs> well, Oli Gunnar Solskjaer goes up against one of the great minds in world football at the moment, Jurgen Klopp, at the weekend. Pep Guardiola, the Manchester City boss, has been talking about philosophies and brands of football. He's described Graham Potter as the best English manager right now. That, of course, after Manchester City beat Brighton in midweek. Pep said, when I was a football player, I would love to play in this team. He qualified it. He said every pass makes sense. Their movement between the lines up front makes sense. Every player is in his position to get the ball and be free. And that has got us thinking, if if Pep thinks Potter is the best English manager, then, then what do we think about it here on the Game Podcast? Um, and there have been interesting views. Lots of you getting in touch with us on social media. Um, Tom, I'm going to start with you. Um, <laughs> listen, and, and this can be any level of football, let's call it that. Who, who do you think should be in the conversation for the best English manager right now? 
Well, I'm glad you say any level, Hugh. But um, no, I, I really did approach this. And I do genuinely do approach every show and I do a little bit of prep. And I, I don't think, where can I get Lincoln City into the conversation? I actually have started thinking I can't bring them up all the time. But you do have to make a decent case for Michael Appleton, Lincoln's current manager. A year ago, he was in charge of a team. Excuse me? Huh? Sorry, I think I heard you wrong. I thought you said Michael Appleton, Lincoln's current manager. Oh, good God. What do you mean? What? I'm confused. Oh, oh you're, you're being serious. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. I thought you were, right. thought you were winding us all up. I can see the only people trying to wind anyone up is you lot trying to wind me up, as usual. You're probably going to say I look like Harry Kane again in a minute. But... I have got a hairband on. Let me make the case for Lord Sir Michael Appleton, right? Not not only for what he did at Oxford uh, Oxford United, which was fantastic and took them up and coached some excellent young players who are now playing much higher level. He took over a team that were moulded in the shape of Danny Cowley, played a certain way, changed the entire squad. We're currently top of the league, League One, playing some unbelievably attractive football. If Pep wants... If Pep's definition of what best is, is every player on the pitch knowing their role and being able to fit and evolve and change around, then he's absolutely got everything going for him. He's only 45. I guarantee you he will manage at a higher level, whether it's managing Lincoln or not. But if you're all going to laugh at me and say that Michael Appleton isn't the best English manager in the league... Uh, I will. I will offer an alter- I will offer an alternative for all you, you know, arrogant top level Premier League only <laughs> chat. And I will offer the example that none of you will like, which is Sean Dyche, because uh, for all everyone talks about exciting uh, Graham Potter, Brighton, and things like that, I always enjoy watching Burnley. I think there's a lot to be admired about the way they play and. It, it, they're still in the Premier League and everyone keeps writing them off and whether whether you want if Pep, if Pep wants best everyone knows what they're doing everyone absolutely knows what they're doing in a Burnley team if your definition of best is success for success, for Burnley success is staying in the Premier League and they keep doing it over and over again so if you won't let me have my suggestion of Michael Appleton then I'll nominate Sean Dyche as uh, the best English manager yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a sensibility to it. It's a, it's a particular brand of football. They've been very successful. Hasn't spent a lot of money as well. There's a lot of factors that go into choosing why a manager is doing a great job. It's not just results, is it, Gregor? <laughs> why are you laughing, you? <laughs> I'm just smiling. Well, look, you know, I'm a, right, a happy-go-lucky happy kind I'd of guy. Say that the first thing I would say is, look around and it's slim pickings. There are not many good English managers out there currently um, certainly not the top level so in that regard you should look out outside the top level um, I'd also say that if you if we asked this question eight months ago there would have been a landslide victor and that would have been Chris Wilder and I still think if you were to say which English manager deserves a crack at a bigger job I'd say he'd be probably top of the pile and who would be more, most successful at it as well I think you could say that about Deitch, definitely, but we know the reasons. It's about style of play, and again, this is all about taste. And Pep's saying this because he enjoys the style of football that Graham Potter plays. And I agree with that, but it's not being successful at the moment. Obviously, Chris Wilders hasn't either this season, but what he has achieved with Sheffield United is remarkable. And I still think that this 
six month barren period and I'm not writing them off yet. I said that last week before and they've just got the first win. I'm not writing them off yet. It doesn't make him a bad manager and I still think he's very near the top of the pile. Um, if we're talking about success, then just to be really contrarian and to piss Pep off, I'd say Neil Warnock because he's won eight promotions and in his 70s, I think now, he's got Middlesbrough seventh, a point outside the playoffs. I would not rule out a ninth and he's done it with the same team that were dire last season and nearly relegated, essentially, and a couple of free transfers. And he's, you know, it's not all about the style of play, it's about those old-fashioned values and characteristics about man management and motivation. And there's been very few uh, who've been better than Neil Warnock at that. So have them, Pep. (laughs) (laughs) Johnny, who do you think's the best English manager? Well, I, th- I think Greg has been very kind, actually, to the you English boys. I mean, management isn't anything that comes naturally to the, to the English. I mean, it's like asking who the best Eskimo <laughs> beach volleyball player is or best vegetarian butcher or something. Um, <laughs> I, I, checked, I checked and Howard Wilkinson's still retired, so I can't choose him. But um, <laughs> I mean, look, it is slim pickings. Um, I think we're overlooking a pretty obvious candidate and it's not one that the... Uh, Football romantics would like any more than Neil Warnock, but you know you've got a guy um, who's been to a European final with Fulham, who's taken Inter Milan to a European final, who has had about six hundred jobs and done pretty well at each of them, apart from a game against Iceland, and is now Crystal Palace's arguably most successful manager in history. And it's Roy, it's Roy Hodgson. I mean, year after year. Um, Roy does what Roy does, and that's a, that's pretty good. And and they're a pretty watchable team. Um, he's a he's got the he's always been a very balanced manager who who you know we've been talking about this earlier achieves safety at the back, but allows attacking players to flourish as we as we see with uh, Zaha and Easy. I, I don't really think there's there's another outstanding candidate. Dean Smith's doing well at the moment. It would have been Wilder a year ago, but I'd I'd go for the the Hardy pull. Um, uh, Roy, who Sean Dice might be, you know, when he grows up. There were lots of shouts for Dean Smith, who you mentioned there, Johnny, of Aston Villa at the moment. Um, and what's wrong, Tom? Well, I just, I'm pretty sure you did get a few other suggestions of a manager further down the pyramid that might have been. You, you, you're right. Yeah. There were there were a few. There were there weren't quite a few. There were Tom's a few, three, three suggestions. <laughs> so there were a few from, suggestions. For Michael, Michael Appleton, Lincoln, Lincoln boss, you, you're not alone in thinking Appleton's the best in the game right now. Many people thought it was Dean Smith of Aston Villa, but for me, last season, I, I just thought Villa were tactically very, very, very poor. They've improved their squad. They've improved their results this season. Uh, listen, uh, listen. I'm not the, the authority on this. You guys can argue if you want to. Um, I, I was vilified for suggesting it might be Frank Lampard of Chelsea. Um, yeah, that's, that's <laughs> people seem to forget. <laughs> what, what, just went, just just went the 17 games unbeaten earlier on this season. Um, but you know, whatever. Um, uh, and I think for me, we've got to discuss what Steven Gerrard is doing at Rangers at the moment. Um, because do we? Do we? Have, I yeah, mean, yeah, okay. If we're discussing, <laughs> well, Greg, if we're discussing, Greg, and now you've piped up. Why don't you? Why don't you take Stevie G? Because he's making Celtic look very average at well, the moment. Well, Celtic are making themselves look like fools as well, which is a slightly uh, it's another conversation. But um, no, undoubtedly, he's someone with real promise. Because if you you know, you'll say you say that you talk about pressure and. Uh, you mentioned that to 
a lot of people who are football fans in England, they're still slightly snooty and laugh about it. But really, there are very few jobs in world football with more pressure on them than being manager either of Celtic or Rangers. If you drop a point, it's a it's a mini catastrophe. Like, um, and he's not dropping many at all. And he's come from a position of such weakness to over to overtake Celtic. As I say, Celtic have you know had their own issues as well, um, but. They have been relentless this season. And so, yeah, if you're talking about most promising, you want the English manager of them with most promise, Gerard would be certainly right up there now. Because well, again, if you look again, if you look at who if he if he wins the League Rangers and possibly more silverware, if there's a big job comes up, Gerard will be close to it as well, I think. Because of his stature and his and his name and and now because of what he's he's done with Rangers. Nearly, he's been very good in Europe as well. That's the thing Absolutely, I've had an eye yeah. on, which is how he set his team up and and beaten some really good opposition there. You know, on Thursday nights when it's been when it's been difficult. Um, yeah, he's, he's he's got a lot of promise. We would, we would have said Eddie Howe a couple of years ago as well, and and you know ju- just because he's out of work, he, does, he hasn't become a a bad manager. What he what he did with Bournemouth, um, I, I wouldn't blame him for going down. You know, I think I think I think the body of work there was was fantastic. So there are a few about. Not many, though. Not many, yeah, Gregor. And I was about to say, if you had to choose the next England manager out of the pool, Graham Potter, Roy Hodgson, who's done it, of course, already, uh, Appleton, Dyche, Smith, Lampard, Wilder, Warnock, Gerard, or Howe, who would you go for for the next England manager if you had to choose an England manager? That says all, doesn't it? I mean, it's 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 not a massive pool. I would I would also just we briefly mentioned it's it. eleven strong eleven strong names. On it at the start, I think Scott Parker is showing quite a lot of managerial potential, particularly in his coaching. Um, but maybe if we have this conversation this time next year, he'll be in the frame. I, I, you you kind of think you think I'm joking. If you watch Lincoln play this season, you think I'm joking, right? You think I'm blindly just throwing in my team. Honestly, watch Lincoln play. Go and watch any of our highlights. The football we play, the young side he's got, he's literally changed the entire team around and the way of playing. You're talking about Stephen Gerrard and achievements. Stephen Gerrard, win- Stephen Gerrard wins the Scottish title with Rangers. And if Michael Appleton wins League One with this Lincoln team, Appleton's is a better achievement. Oh, mate. That's it. We need, we need to end the show now. That's yeah, ridiculous. He's taking it too far. He's taking it too far. I've had enough. I've had enough. Absolutely <laughs> nailed on. It's a better achievement. We're literally in a relegation fight last season. He's Tom, got the, honestly, the average, the average age of the team. Have you, all right. I've watched Rangers a couple of times this season. Have you watched the Lincoln game this season? Yes. Which one? I don't remember which one, but no, I watch the highlights every week too. I know, I know he's a good manager, and he's. I'm sure you. I'm sure you're right. I think he will do well, and I think I'm he'll probably. About achievement, he'll maybe though. take them into the championship. Think... He'll maybe. He'll maybe. You know, who knows? He maybe will reach the Premier League again. It's just a ridiculous thing to say that if he, it's the same, it would be the same achievement as Gerard running the League of Rangers. I watched the game. I was texting you. I watched the the, the old firm derby. If if that Celtic team are his competition for winning the title. Then this is barely any achievement at all. I'm sorry, this Celtic team absolutely. So we get it. Tom Clark says Michael Appleton, future England manager. Jonathan Northcroft, who would you choose out of that pool? <laughs> I can't. I can't choose Roy, can I? Um, yeah, let's go, Freddie Howe. Then um, I think he would. Uh, I think he would fit the profile. He would. Um, he'd give continuity after after Southgate. It's, unless they go foreign again. Um, Sven's still available. Fabio's not doing much. 
Um, no, you can't. Yeah. No, hang on a minute. I'm not getting hung out to Steve dry picking, picking Michael Appleton, and then we're just politely all nodding along while Johnny picks a guy who's just got relegated and is out of work for next England manager. Come on, I'm getting absolutely ripped to shreds for picking a young you can't manager. Excuse the body of work, the five years coaching, of Bournemouth managerial experience and coaching young players in any sort of circumstance. And Johnny's picking a guy out of work who's just got relegated, and we're all like, "Yeah, good shout, mate. Yeah, nice one." <laughs> It's a bad show of a group of horrendous shows. Eddie did what uh, Appleton did uh, about five years ago, ten years ago with Bournemouth. Took them up, didn't he? You know, if if, well, if Appy gets done. five years in the well, Premier he goes down. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, Gregor, if any of those guys get the England job, then you know, if you had to pick one, exactly. Thank you. Play along. Pick a pick a man. Come on, <sighs> Gerard. He'd be very, he'd be better respected. He'd be more, he'd be respected more than any of the rest of them by the players. That's it. I get the feeling that the country would love Chris Wilder to do it. I think the country would just love the, you know, the the the, the way that the man conducts himself uh, to be the England manager at some point. But for me, I, I don't think it will be an English manager next. I would probably go with Gerard as well out of the group because uh, I think you're right. He does command that sort of. Um, respect but you, look slim pickings but Gareth Southgate's the manager at the moment and he reached the semi-final of the World Cup so anything can happen guys dream a little bit I know two of you are Scottish but Tom and I can dream a little bit uh, thank you for being with me on the game podcast this week there'll be plenty for us to discuss on Monday including that game you mentioned uh, between Liverpool and Manchester United thank you to those of you that, that shared your views on who the best English manager is right now you've been listening to the game podcast as I say we'll be back on Monday in the meantime give us a five star review wherever you uh, get your podcast from and you can also get yourself a digital subscription for the Times and the Sunday Times and get more of our award-winning journalism on all your devices uh, just sign up today and get yourself one month free go online search the times.co.uk forward slash the game to get started we will see you on monday enjoy the weekend Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.